Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 12. Uh, some of you remember at our retreat last year, my friend Greg Stikes was here with us. Greg uh, and I have been really good friends since college. Uh, we were in a play together. It was uh, not one of the main productions at college. They had for the theater arts students, they had to, ones who were involved in, in um, uh, studying how to be a uh, director for a play. They would have to put on a little play as a senior, kind of a senior project. And they would ask for students to, to be in those. And so I was in a bunch of those. They were a lot of fun. Um, uh, and Greg was in one. And we, we were in it together. And he is a very good actor. I am a terrible actor. I, I basically just play myself. So they give me the comic relief parts, you know. And, and that's every play I was in. It was the same. I was exactly the same. There was, there was no variation at all. That they just said, Matt's trying out. This is perfect for him. And that's the part they gave me. And you could have just changed the name. I mean, the name change could have been the same name, same character. That's all I was. Well, Greg and I got to know each other. And he was he's a smart guy. Uh, uh, really, really smart. And, uh, and we uh, uh, reconnected. Uh, he had gone on to teach speech at a college in Wisconsin. And then later had gone to uh, um, a seminary. In, in Minneapolis, where he was the youth pastor, actually, while he was going to seminary. And we, we connected there, and just our paths would keep crossing one another. And then um, he became the director of the Doctor of Ministry program that I entered a few years ago, and we just have a lot of contact. One of the things about Greg was, is that he's got a great sense of humor. He's just a, a, a wonderful guy to be around. But a short time after college, he married, as, as a lot of young men do, and maybe within a year of marriage, I don't know if it was a whole year had gone by, he and his wife and another friend of theirs from the uh, speech faculty in South Carolina, as they were getting their grad degrees, uh, they were driving up to the wilds in Brevard. And on the way back from the wilds, they came to a four-way stop in rural North Carolina, and a truck ran the four-way stop sign uh, and hit their car. Um, what had happened during that day, actually, Greg was a little under the weather, and in fact, uh, as they were getting in the car, he told his wife, would you mind riding in the front seat and dr or driving, rather? I, I just feel terrible. I'm going to lay down in the back. And I don't remember if his wife was driving or riding in the front seat passenger side, but Greg was laying down in the back seat. And when the car hit, it would have hit where Greg was sitting, but instead it hit where his wife was sitting. And she was thrown from the vehicle, and Greg, of course, got out of the car. He's just, she's, they're a young couple, you know, just starting life together. And there in the street, his wife died. And uh, I remember I, I vividly uh, going to the funeral because I knew both of them very well, both Greg and Aaron, his uh, wife who passed away. And um, we, uh, I went to this funeral. His dad was there. I, I think his dad may have preached. Uh, we were also friends with a young pastor uh, who was a youth pastor actually in South Carolina. I think he spoke as well. And... And we all just grieved together. Uh, this young man who was just living the excited life of a newlywed lost his wife. And you can only imagine the grief that that would be, how strong and, and difficult that is. But what happened afterward is a testimony to God's grace in Greg's life 
because even though he mourned, he expressed his commitment to God's plan for his life. In fact, later tonight, we're going to sing a song, God Makes No Mistakes. They sang the song at that funeral. And, and it was just incredible to sing together, I know God makes no mistakes. Uh, he leads in every path I take, even, even during a time of grief. You know, that's a lot different from the way unbelievers grieve. When, when people go through the dark and deep waters of grief, when they walk through that river, that torrent, they don't grieve like believers do. In 1969, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published her research into human grief, outlining five distinct stages. I've gone through these uh, earlier in this series with you. Um, they process their emotional hurt in five ways. First is denial, then anger, and then bargaining, and then depression, and then acceptance. And, and since her study, other scholars have come and tried to refute some of her work, but overall, her five stages, these observations that she's made, seem somewhat legitimate. I was thinking to myself in my office, I read these five stages and my initial thought, well, well, that's not true. Denial. Then it made me upset that someone would come up with something like this, anger. Then I figured out I might reach out to Dr. Ross and, and see if I could reason with her bargaining, but then I was disappointed to learn that she had died in 2004, depression. Then I finally came to acknowledge the reality that her five stages theory is the majority position. That's acceptance, and there's nothing I can do about it now. But let me tell you something, friends. That's not how believers grieve. And so I think we can allow Scripture to shape our thoughts, to, to control the way we think. And we can ask ourselves, how should a Christian grieve? What makes Christian grief different from non-Christian grief? And with this, I propose that Christian grief has three distinct stages that you can see in the life of David in regards to his son, the death of his son. And these stages are prayer, commitment, and hope. When struck by grief, our first best response is prayer. We've been through that. And as we pray through our grief, God's word and his spirit speak to our hearts, giving us the requisite commitment that what has happened is actually part of his perfect will for us, either bringing it himself into our life or allowing it into our life. It's part of his will for us. And finally, as grief turns to sorrow, our hearts become enlivened and rejoice because of the hope for the promises of God to be accomplished. And so we yearn at the end of grief, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So let me begin. Number one, bring your griefs to God. Now your grief may be very great. It says here in verse 15, Nathan departed unto his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, bear unto David, and it was very sick. Nathan, verse 14, foretold that the child would die. You see, David had sinned horrifically. 
You go back from the beginning of the chapter. He had taken another man's wife as if she was his own. He had that man later murdered and he covered up his sin in the process. He sullied God's name. And when confronted by Nathan of his sin, it says here that he repented of it. Nathan called him the murderer. Thou art the man, is what he said to David. And David did not deny Nathan's claims against him. He truly repented. You can read Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and see David's repentance for his sin. He offered no mitigating explanation. Friends, that's the modern way of repentance. I sinned, but. I did wrong, but. If you knew my background, if you understood what happened to me, if if you could grasp the problems that I face, then you would understand why I did what I did. Friends, that's not repentance. David repented fully. I love the way repentance is described in 2 Corinthians. Paul says to the believers there, you truly repented. And and then he gives these about eight or nine different words that talk about how they were even violent in their repentance. They were so upset about their sin, they turned violently away from it. The clearing of yourselves, the way he puts it. They were absolutely certain they did not want to be sinners as, as Paul had described. They turned away from it. And this is what David does. He confesses publicly, acknowledges his sin. Regardless. The child born to Bathsheba would still die as punishment for that sin. God had declared it. And can I tell you, that strikes the modern ear all wrong, doesn't it? We're all into second chances in America. By the way, do you know a second chance is not a second chance? It's a second chance after you've been caught. It's really the 3,457,229th chance, right? Because the second chance is, well, I did it all these times, I didn't get caught, now I got caught, give me a second chance. No, you had your second chance 10 years ago. You're on a much later chance now. It strikes the modern ear. We hear excuses. He's suffered enough. I mean, look what he sinned, but look, look how it turned out for him. He suffered enough. She won't do it again. Lesson has been learned. Does she really have to go through the consequences? My friends, God doesn't work that way. If you understand how God views sin, you understand that God doesn't just wink at it and turn away from it. He took all of our sin and poured out his wrath on sin, on our sin, onto his own son, Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin. There wasn't a second chance. We sinned. Sin brings death. Death is separation from God. Jesus came to give us new life in him. So the child is going to die. Imagine then David's grief when it gets sick. You've been told the child's going to die. No chance of getting better. And the child's fine. The Bible doesn't say how old the child is. We, we believe the child is an infant. 
But the Bible doesn't say how long of time goes by. It could be a few days. Clearly, the child is already born. It could be a few days. It could be a few years. Some people suspect that this period of time from the death of Uriah to the death of the child is around two to three years in length. It may be that the child has already been born. But regardless, the child is healthy. At some point after birth, everybody's excited. The, the, uh, the new feelings of fatherhood have already set in for David. Uh, Bathsheba is excited to be a mother. They, they believe that they've gotten away with their sin. Nobody really knows. And then Nathan the prophet comes. He declares David's sin to him. And then at that moment, they're all watching that child. And then the child gets sick. And immediately David knows the reason for the illness. The Lord struck the child. That's what the text says. The illness is from the Lord. In fact, this is interesting because some Jewish expositors concluded from this passage that children would suffer for their parents' sin. Now we know that's not true. How do we know that's not true? Because in John chapter 9, you see the, the, the man born blind and the disciples said, who did sin? His father, his parents, or he himself that he was born blind as if he could sin in the womb. And, and Jesus said, for none of those reasons, but that the glory of God would be manifest in him. It is this story. This is really one of the very few stories you see in the Bible where a child is actually punished for the father's sins. But here we have the truth that the Lord strikes this child this child is going to die. So what did David do in response? This is letter B. Seek the Lord's mercies. He, he besought God for the child. He fasted, went in and lay all night on the earth. And the elders of his house, verse 17, they got up and they said, come on, get up off the ground and eat something. And he would not. David's response is to seek God on behalf of his son. Because David knows something about God. God loves repentance, friends. He loves it. We're all sinful. We sin every day. We should repent every day. And friends, if you realize the beauty of this story, God loves repentance. David knows that. So David naturally goes to God and he fasts. He shows all these signs of grief. He's fasting and he's praying. This is the passion of David's prayer. He lays on the earth the sign of grief. And so he's pleading with the Lord's mercies, implied in the passage, not stated directly. He's pleading with God to please be merciful to him. I don't know if you've ever been at that place in your life, but if you've ever been faced with your sin, truly faced with it, where you have looked at how awful and black and evil your heart is, my friends, I hope you've come to the place where you have come to God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because this is exactly how we should respond. So David is on the ground. And he's praying to God. And he's pleading with God. And you know, we have a lot of Old Testament passages where God looks at people who repent and he does turn away. One of the most notable is Ahab of all people. Ahab is told that God is going to bring judgment upon him. Ahab's an unbeliever. Ahab's evil. He and his wife murdered 
Naaman? Naboth. Uh, the name escaped me for a moment. Yeah, to steal his vineyard. Horrible. They were evil people. Jezebel. Do you, do you wonder why nobody names their daughter Jezebel? She's, she's universally known for the last 4,000 years as an awful person. And But Ahab repents when he's told what God's going to do, and God says, okay, I'm not going to do it right now. I'll bring it upon this judgment on his son and his son's generation, but I won't bring it upon him. It's really quite amazing how God responds to repentance. So David is passionate in his prayer, and he will not be persuaded to change. No one can turn him from his intent. Come on, get up off the ground. You need food. You need sustenance. Get up off the ground and pray your prayers. Eat something. David won't. You know, this reminds me of Saul and the Witch of Endor. That story we looked at last summer. What did Saul do when he was told that he would die in battle the next day? He, he fell to the ground. He began to fast. He began to pray. And then his men came along and said, listen, you need to eat something. And then he just popped right back up. He didn't last even a few hours, and he was eating again. He said, I won't eat. I'm going to repent. And it was all fake. It was all for show. David's sincere. And, and it strikes me, friends, that when we are swept into a river of grief that threatens to drown us in our sorrows, then at that point, we must bring these things to God. You must bring it to God. Telling a friend is great, and it may salve your sorrow a little. But bringing it to God is the only thing that will really begin you down the path of overcoming your griefs. Bring your griefs to God, number two. Not only must you bring your griefs to God, but when the waters of grief run deep, you must commit your grief to God's perfect will. You look at verse 18, and it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died and the servants feared to tell him. They wouldn't tell David the child was dead. They said, when the child was alive, look how he was. Imagine how he'll be once we tell him the child is dead. David, it, it, you may be overcome with sorrow. David was overcome. The sorrow lasted a week. This is an ongoing struggle between God and David this whole time as David is in prayer and God refuses to relent from the punishment that he's going to bring upon David so that his own servants are worried to tell him any bad news at all. They're afraid. And that's how strong David's grief was. They saw this next step as amplification of David's sorrow. I mean, that's normal, right? I mean, the servants are logical. Look how he is now. If we tell him the child's dead, How's he going to be then? He might hurt himself. We can't tell him anything. But even when you're overcome with sorrow, let her be, be convinced that God makes no mistakes. Verse 19, when David saw his servants whisper, David perceived that the child was dead. And therefore he said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And he came into his own house when he required. And they said, bread before him and he did eat. David perceives the child has died. There's something in him that knows the likely outcome of this situation. He knows what's going to happen with this illness. 
He's been doing this for a week with no change. He knows the prophet's message is from the Lord. And so now his perceptions are more keen. He sees the servants whispering and he knows what they're saying. But he knows that God's control, that's best for him. Can I tell you, there are three evidences of someone who's convinced that God's plan is best. There's a perceptible change in demeanor. When you, when you become convinced that whatever is going in your life is God's plan, your demeanor will change. That God has brought this upon me for whatever reason. It hurts, it's painful, but I know this is the path that God wants me to walk. Then you say, okay, Lord, my, my dad likes to joke that at every wedding, the song they should sing is, The Fight is On, O Christian Brother. You know, when Becky and I married 27 years ago in August, this coming August, when we married, we got bud vases from people. Uh, we had all of these rosebud vases. We, we would I would have had to have a rose farm to somehow put enough roses in all the bud vases. It was the thing to give. Now, with the internet and, and the way that these different stores have just reached their marketing arm right into the, the wedding situation, it's amazing. I, I'm looking at what my children are getting from you people who are spoiling them, by the way. And by the way, you better be getting your thank you notes. This is just an aside. I have told her, but anyway, on numerous occasions. Well, we were getting all these bud vases, and one, one well-meaning guy sent me a book. Uh, what was the title of that book? Some, uh, God's Will is Best? Uh, no. Um, um, it was like, Yes, trusting God even when life hurts. That's a book for marriage. <laughs> Not how to have a happy marriage. It's when everything goes wrong. Just trust the Lord. But you know, that really is good counsel. That is good counsel. There's a perceptible demeanor. He changes. He washes his clothes. There's a return to the worship of God. Instead of running from him, who you might be tempted to blame, you say, okay, Lord, this is your plan, and you run to him. Even when life is difficult. And there's a return to the ordinary activities of life. God wants you to eat food. He wants you to drink water. He wants you to sustain yourself. And this is what comes to the believer who has his confidence in God. When, when you just become convinced, this is what God wants. This is why all, all of the Pentecostal views on prayer do damage to people. This is why when, when John Hagee decided to cast out the demon of COVID in early 2020, it does damage to people. 
Sometimes when grandma gets sick, she's not going to survive. Okay? It's, it's just how it's going to be. And, and it isn't that we don't want her to keep living. It's, it's just that's what happens. That's part of life. That's part of God's plan because we're sinners. Sin leads, comes, leads to death. So from the Garden of Eden to now, this is what's happened. Whereas my pastor in Indiana used to say, a hundred years from now, all new people, right? It's just going to happen. And when you tell somebody it's not going to happen, oh, we just keep praying harder. God will answer that prayer. Grandma will get better again. Well, eventually grandma's not going to get better again. Or we'd have some 400-year-old grandma running around out there. Or you then come to the belief that you, your prayers weren't answered by God and that maybe God hates you or something. See, what God really wants from prayer is for you to become convinced that this was what God wanted, even if it's hard. Even if it's the result of other people's sin against you. For you to say, okay, Lord, this was difficult and I would never have planned this out for myself. This was not what I wanted, but this is what you brought to me. And you see this all the time, friends, in our society. The, the, the young couple who can't get pregnant, and finally they do, but the child is born with a, a, a major deficiency. And all of a sudden, it's just grief upon grief. And there's all these questions. Okay, God, you wouldn't let us have a child of our own. And then finally, we were able to have that child, and now this is how the child is. And all these questions. But maybe you just stop and say, this is God's plan for me. And I will glory in God's plan for me as hard as it is. As difficult as it seems. I was, I was down in south part of Cary. There's a seminary down in the south part of Cary. And the, one of the professors at the seminary, he's actually with the Lord now. He died a few years ago out on a Sunday morning jog before church. He just went to be with the Lord right on the side of the road. Um, he was a he was a super guy. He taught at Central Seminary in Minneapolis, and then and then went down here and taught uh, counseling. And uh, I was down there because we had a speaker here who who was the former president, and he was president emeritus of the seminary in in Minneapolis, and so he knew a bunch of guys down here. And we all went to lunch. It was it was really fun. I, they invited me. I didn't know any of these guys, but I went to lunch, and I got into this guy's house. Uh, this guy, he, he wasn't with the Lord yet, obviously. We, we were going to have lunch with him, and his wife's there, and his family's there, and they're all older. I mean, this guy was in his uh, early 70s by this point, late 60s, and oh, the children are older. And there's a, there's a grown child there with Down syndrome. And, and he was just the sweetest young man. And before we, before we ate, one of them said, hey, would you open us in prayer? And this young man prayed the sweetest most beautiful prayer you can imagine. Now, he was never going to leave the house. He's going to be tethered to mom and dad, now to mom, for as long as he lives. But that is a young man who knows the Lord. And that's a family that said, this is, this is what God gave us, and we're going to praise God, and we're going to use what God gave us to his glory. And that's what happens when you commit and say, okay, God, it's your plan. This is what you have for me. And I would never have chosen this for myself. And my friends, don't, don't believe the lie that you have everything it takes to get through it. God won't give you something you can't handle. God always gives you things you can't handle. You can only handle them with His strengths working in you. If you try to handle it, you'll fall on your face. 
But when he works through you, when you commit yourself to his plan and to his purpose, and now through his strength, yes, absolutely, you can handle it because he can handle it. And that's why you're able to handle it. And when you get that confidence, yes, this marriage is broken, but this is, for some reason, this is where God has led me. That this career is over, and I don't know why, and I've lost a lot of money in the process, but this is where God has led me. I once got a phone call, I think I've told you before, from a guy who had lost a bunch of money in an investment, and, and he, he was crying on the phone to me, and in the middle of the, of the phone call, I realized he lost more money than I'm ever going to have. It's kind of hard for me to be sympathetic. You're still worth like 10 times what I am, okay? Oh, that's hard, yeah. And that's why I, I didn't do that. That's my flesh. I, I said, well, okay, brother, you know, we'll pray with you, and yeah, and God can help you, and try not to be greedy next time, and, you know. <laughs> it was a pretty wild investment. When you get confidence, this is what God's brought. Then you realize that the one, the shepherd who leads, leads you down into those green pastures and by the still waters sometimes takes you down the valley, the road of the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes that's the path of his righteousness and his namesake. So I tell you, friends, bring your griefs to God, commit your griefs to him, and then overcome your griefs with hope. This is, this is how we do it. See, now David, as he's, he's able to overcome his grief with his eternal hope because he can find peace in the midst of grief. He, so he says to his servants, well, they say to him, what have, you, what have you done? You did fast and weep for the child when it was alive, but when the child was dead, you, you rose and ate bread. You're at peace now. This is wrong. Because David had peace in the time of grief, and it surprised people. Others are now wondering at what he's doing. And it's because at that moment, they cannot understand what God is doing in your heart. But God's peace, my friends, is always beyond understanding. The, this putting up a guard around your heart as you turn your anxieties to him and become committed to his will, it will not make sense to others. So when the child was alive, you wept. When the child died, you're at peace. It's backwards. But that's because now in your grief, your peace comes from the eternal promises of God. You say to back to them, when the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me? But now that he's dead, why should I continue fasting? Can I bring him back again? Oh, no. I shall go to him. He won't come to me. David knew his son wasn't coming back. Do you, do you see what David is saying is? He's to his friends and his servants, I have come to a resolution in my heart. This is what God wants. God could raise the child from the dead, but, but no, this is what God wants. This is God's will. It's an explanation here from, that, from the, what we were just talking about. It's God's plan. And, and there's no reason for me to undo his plan. This is what God wants, and he knows so much more than I do. And his wisdom is so much vaster than mine. And so in my sorrow and in my grief, I, I wept and I said, maybe God will be gracious, but now that I know what his plan actually is, and it's sealed and it's done, why would I continue weeping? He had hoped, 
he would see his son alive on earth. But he knew, he knew that he would see him again in heaven. This is one of the passages that we use. We talk about what happens when a baby dies. It's one of the most difficult things anybody can go through, whether it's through miscarriage or or through uh, death after birth. Very hard. Some of you have been through those kinds of things. You know how difficult it is. This is one of the passages we go to. I'm not saying David knew everything about eschatology and the end times. I'm not saying he had a full grasp on heaven and hell and the lake of fire and the intermediate state and the and the eternal state. I'm not saying that. I'm saying simply in his mind, in his trusting God and what he knew from the Bible that he had, he had come to a firm assurance that the way of life always leads to the grave, but there is something beyond it. And you actually see the contrast because the way he mourns for his son Absalom when Absalom dies is totally different. Not because he loved Absalom more than this unnamed child, but because Absalom is lost. (laughs) David will never see that son ever again. And so he's inconsolable. Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, I would have died for you. He doesn't have to say this for this little boy. He can say, it's okay. God has taken him, and one day we'll be reunited again. That eternal hope, friends, it changes everything. When you can, when you can stand there, and it's hard to stand at, at a casket and look at a, a body. Used to be a soul there with the body. Soul's now with the Lord. But when you know that person is with the Lord, You grieve, but it's not like those who have no hope, right? Because you know that person's with God. And what goes in the ground is just body. And one day that body will be reanimated by God's Spirit and will come alive again from the ground. Just like Jesus rose from the dead. Those who are Christ will rise from the dead. And we have that hope. And so we grieve, but not as others. We grieve with joy. We grieve with peace in our hearts. And I can tell you, I have seen Christians grieve for the loss of their loved ones who were saved. And it's hard, and it stings, and it's difficult to go through. And then I've seen people grieve who have no hope. I stood and watched a woman who was absolutely drunk, completely and totally drunk, Stand there at a graveside when I was a youth pastor in Pennsylvania. The pastor said, you want to do the funeral? I really don't want to. And I said, I'm looking for experience anywhere. I'll do anything, sure. And here I am at a funeral of a family that's lost. The mom was dead. The daughter is in her 40s. And I'm this young 20-something pastor trying to give some measure of peace to a people who don't know Christ by preaching the gospel. But at the graveside, this woman in her inebriated state tried to actually open the casket and crawl into it because she was so upset. And I I saw that, and I've never seen any Christian person do that. Why? Because they know where the person is. And it's that hope that just buoys your spirits, that gives you that confidence that, yes, it's, it's hard now, it's difficult, but it's just like going into another room of the house Yeah, I can't walk through that door right now, but someday I'm going to. And I've met people who are older, 
you start getting up in years, you know, late 80s, early 90s. You know, you know what you find when you get to be that age? Everybody you knew in life is already gone. I mean, uh, uh, this past year, um, the fourth person I graduated from high school with died. We were about 125 in our class. The fourth died. Now, that's pretty good, probably. I don't know what the percentages are after 30-some after years. That's probably pretty good. But as the years go by, that number is going to rise. I, I'm kind of hoping to be the last one on the list, but I, I may be the next one on the list. And actually, when I, if I am the last one on the list, it's, it's likely that some of you will be thinking it would have been nicer if you'd have been earlier. <laughs> you know, that filter, what little filter he had, gone. It's gone. But you know, you... You see those situations and you say, yes, but I know where he is. I know where she is. And your, and your joy is different. Your peace is different. This is, by the way, how Jesus grieved on the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? He prays to his father. He demonstrates his commitment to the father in bringing the other thief to salvation. And then he dies commending his spirit to his father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus grieves the same way. And the way, best way to prepare for grief is to be already doing these things on a regular basis. Friends, you're going to grieve someday. You're going to grieve over the loss of your parents or your grandparents. You're going to grieve over the loss of a wife or a child or a husband or, or extended family, a brother or sister. You're going to grieve. You will. You'll walk through those waters and, and you'll grieve over the loss of your marriage or you'll grieve over the loss of your business or the loss of whatever it is. It'll be intense. It'll be emotional. But the best way to prepare for it is right now to be praying, right now to be seeing life through the lens of God's will, right now to be constantly reminding yourself every day, Jesus could come back today. And if you live that way now, when the grief comes, you're able to remind yourself of the very things you've already been doing. So I admonish you, I encourage you, I command you in the Lord. Be in prayer every day. Be committing your life to his plan every day. And be hoping in him every day. Because what you find when you do those things in prayer is that he's with you. When you commit your way to him, he's with you. When you hope in him, he's with you. I thought about concluding this with a poem like uh, The Footprints in the Sand, something really corny. That crossed my mind. I thought, that's been way overdone. I've never quoted that poem here, and I never will. That's my commitment. That, that one's overdone a bit. Okay, you've seen it. You can go to Hobby Lobby and probably buy it on a, you know, it's fine. Then I started thinking about other poems. You know, there's that poem, Jesus Walked This Lonesome Valley. That's not a, actually a very good poem. It's a Christian song, but it's actually pretty rotten because you, Jesus walked this lonesome valley. He had to walk it by himself. Nobody else could walk it with him. He had to walk it by himself. That's pretty good. But then you read, we must walk this lonesome valley. We have to walk it by ourselves. That's not encouraging. Nobody else can walk it with us. We have to walk it by ourselves. I thought, I can't use that one. And then I read this traditional Irish blessing. And it's so good. You may see God's light 
on the path ahead when the road you walk is dark. May you always hear in your hour of sorrow the gentle singing of the lark. And when times are hard, may hardness never turn your heart to stone. And may you always remember when the shadows fall, you do not walk alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you're with us. Help us to be people of prayer. To bring our burdens to you. There are people here with burdens, heavy, heavy burdens. Help them, Lord, to bring those to you and lay them at your feet. And to be confident that the hardship of life is part of your plan. That you still love us. And then, Lord, may we as your people look ahead and see the beauty See the wonder of the eternal life and long for it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that this reminds us how close you are. And yes, we can live in denial and we can live in anger and live in depression. Or we can be at peace and rejoice. I'd rather do that. Before I finish praying, how many of you say, you know, Pastor, I'm not in grief right now. But honestly, I'm not living my life in prayer. I'm not really committed to God's plan. I'm okay with it as long as things are good. But I'm not really committed to it. And you're not really thinking about the return of Christ every day. If that's you, you're not ready for the next grief. You're not ready. You're you're in trouble. Will you just commit yourself to these things? Will you just be ready? And in your heart today, say, you know what? I'm going to begin making life a matter of prayer. I'm going to bring my things to the Lord. I'm going to commit my way to him. And I'm going to every day just hope that Jesus can come back today and keep my eyes focused on heaven. So I'll be ready for the next grief that comes. So I can grieve like Christians grieve. If that's where you're at, and God is convicting you a bit, nudging you a bit in this area, Can I pray for you? Anybody at all? Just slip up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. That's me. Yes, sir. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. Lord, I'm concerned that we're not really ready if the bottom falls out. But we have a plan now. And help us to commit ourselves to this, even if it's not at this moment. Maybe this could be something we could just set aside in our minds and be ready for when the next real trial happens. I hope we'll be prepared. I hope we'll be planning ahead. But Lord, if not, maybe this is something we can use later. But regardless, Lord, we know that in in this moment, 
The greatest thing about our grief is that in our prayer, in our commitment, and in our hope, we're never alone. You're always with us. You're always beside us. Just like the Lord struck this child, the Lord gave David his peace. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our, our feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. Would you just commit in your heart to these things? Just right now, seal them in your heart. Even if you didn't raise your hand, that's fine. Just seal it in your heart right now. Prayer and commitment and hope as she plays.